0: Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews donors, thought leaders, and professionals in the field of fundraising. Hello, all. This is the final episode of Season 10, and what a season it has been. We have had some incredible guests from across the country talk about some amazing topics, and there has been so much to learn, but I wanted to close with this conversation because it offers a fresh perspective on wealth, both as a writer and as a donor. Today's guest, Paul Sullivan, has had and continues to have an exciting career that we can all learn from. So sit back, relax, and listen to Paul reflect on his journey to date, and frankly, what money has to do with it. So let's learn about Paul. He is the founder of the company of dads, the first platform dedicated to creating a community for lead dads. Its mission is to help lead dads feel less isolated and more confident that they've made the correct choice to take on the bulk of the parenting and family duties, or at the very least, not embrace stereotypes around who does what at home. As a lead dad himself, Paul understands intimately the joys, frustrations, isolation, and reticence around talking about being a lead dad. It's a role that is growing in numbers, but is far from normalized. Before starting the company of dads in 2021, Paul wrote the Wealth Matters column in the New York Times for 13 years. He also created the Money Game column in Golf Magazine. As a journalist for 25 years, his articles appeared in Fortune, Money, Condé Nast, Portfolio, the International Herald-Tribune, Barron's, the Boston Globe, and Food & Wine. From 2000 to 2006, he was a reporter, editor, and columnist at the Financial Times. He got his start as a reporter at Bloomberg and institutional investor. He's the author of two books, Clutch, Why Some People Excel Under Pressure and Others Don't, and The Thin Green Line, Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy. Paul's been interviewed on podcasts, radio and television programs across America, including NPR, Marketplace. CNN Fox News and now the development debrief he's also given keynote talks to audiences from 50 to 500 people in the United States Mexico and Chile Paul lives in New Canaan Connecticut with his wife and their three daughters and their three dogs he received degrees in history from Trinity College and the University of Chicago when not running the company of dads or being a lead dad he is an obsessive golfer now let's get started
1: Hi, Paul. Welcome to the debrief.
2: Hey, Catherine. Thanks for having me on.
1: I'm a little bit intimidated to be interviewing a fellow podcast host.
2: <laughs> There'll be a quiz at the end of this. So um <laughs> I'll be I'll I'll be grading, but but I'm I, you know, I grade on the curve. I'm a pretty, pretty easy grader.
1: And you host two podcasts, right?
2: Well, we, we've got a bunch. Of, so, you know, the company of dads has the main company of dads podcast. Uh, then we're just launching a new one called the Global Dads Council Podcast, in which we have Sort of forefathers from around the world, all sort of addressing, you know, uh, one single issue. Um, and then, of course, you know, on occasion, uh, I do a podcast for our alma mater, uh, Trinity College, called Beyond the Summit. You
1: definitely have a radio voice.
2: <laughs> I, I don't know how I'm supposed to take that, Catherine. You know, we, are, we, are, we are on video here. When they say, you know, you got a face for radio, like, you know, all Catherine. Rule number one: always flatter your guests. Always always flatter. <laughs> Well,
1: there's lots of flattery coming your way. I want to talk about some of the accomplishments that you have made over the years in your career. And I'd love to start with the column that you wrote for nearly 13 years in the New York Times, which was called Wealth Matters. How did you get there? How did that start?
2: Uh, it was my dream job. You know, uh, if I could one day, you know, not I created the Wealth Matters column, so that that, that couldn't be my dream job, but to to write for the New York Times and it happened, you know, like so many great things in life, a combination of hard work and, and serendipity. You know, I had created a similar column at the Financial Times, at the FT, and then I got to know some of the editors at at the Times. And when the paper was looking to expand and add uh, a couple other uh, money related columns to sort of the Your Money column, which is the flagship column. Uh, I got called in for an interview and I'll always remember that my first interview, um, <clears throat> this is all in 2008. The first interview was the day that Bear Stearns collapsed. And so it was on all the TVs and the newsroom in the New York times. Um, I found out that uh, I was going to, you know, get to create the column the day that Lehman brothers collapsed. And my first wealth matters column ran the weekend that some guy named Bernie Madoff was uh, pulled out of his park Avenue apartment and, it was you know every this is 2008 everything started off you know super frothy the world is great and as i'm interviewing it the world is just getting progressively worse as we go into this uh financial crisis so it became a, a, a much different column but as you said i wrote it for for nearly 13 years i wrote 608 uh wealth matters columns more than a million words in the new york times and uh I pretty much loved every minute of it. I mean, it was a job, so you know, you have good weeks and bad weeks, but it just was—it uh, was fantastic. I love my colleagues. I never ran out of ideas. I mean, I got to six hundred and eight, so it was—it was wonderful.
1: I love that you never ran out of ideas. That's how I feel about this podcast as well. I think that's how you know you're working in the right space. But how did you choose which idea to cover when, and what do you think were the more popular subjects?
2: Oh, I actually I know the answer to that uh, the second part of that question because um for the five hundredth column, I went back and I looked at the four hundred and ninety nine I had written before that. And I know we don't have a video, but it's actually hanging on my wall over there. the The Times has a tradition of if you get a story on, uh, on A1 on the front page, or, or if you have a particularly um, significant story, they give you the printing plate. So I have a printing plate of that story and super nerdy, very, very nerdy, but super cool thing to have. But <clears throat> there are a ton of them about taxes, as you might imagine. There are a ton of them about how people think about money. And the fourth third category was, there are some frothy ones like, you know... Um, How much does it cost to, you know, run a, you know, 150 foot yacht, a 300 foot yacht? Those are just, you know, uh, voyeuristic. Um, But the ones that were probably the most popular were ones that talked about how you discuss your wealth with the people around you. So how do you talk about your legacy? How do you talk to your children about wealth, about how you made it, about any responsibilities? And that those columns on on how people thought about their legacy, how they thought about wealth, those are always very popular because you know certainly I mean people listen to this in the development world. I mean, you know, you're worth tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billion dollars. There's nobody really to give you advice on the the softer side of life. And if they are giving you advice, you know, do you really trust that person? You know, Do they want you to just invest in XYZ fund or do they want to manage 10% of your wealth, 20% of your wealth? And, and so you're always sort of skeptical. And so when I could get people to talk, wealthy people to talk about it, they're popular because other wealthy people wanted to, to read it and, and see how others had, had done. And that kind of also dovetailed with... With philanthropy, get a billionaire on the phone to talk about his or her philanthropy much easier than you could get that billionaire on the phone to talk about, you know, life as a billionaire.
1: Yeah, that was my next question, because I know that you featured Esther Choi, and she talked about some of her research in philanthropy, but like, was philanthropy one every 10 articles, one every 100 articles? It seems like it's becoming, to use your term, frothier these days. People are wanting to talk about it more
2: yeah I mean I, I probably could have written a, a philanthropy column every other week if I, if I wanted to. but yeah. the way the column is structured it, there had to be a takeaway. There had to and, and ideally in the best possible way, there had to be a, a takeaway that an, an educated upper middle class New York Times reader could could use. So it couldn't be too esoteric.
1: For the fundraisers listening, what sections of the New York Times do you think they should be reading as part of their regular practice to be interesting to talk to with donors, to be informed? That's you know, easy. You it's tell easy.
2: The obituaries. Got okay. That is obituaries. so
1: crazy because we talk about the obituaries at work all the time.
2: <laughs> 100%, 100%. Like, holy cow. I didn't know who that person was. That person did something really super interesting. Hmm. That person's dead. Uh, I wonder if that person has any uh, but then they children make all or the grandchildren.
1: surviving family. Yeah,
2: death. yeah, hundred yeah. percent.
1: Okay, you Feel heard morbid, it but... folks over <laughs> Make it a practice. It's it. My, practice. It's
2: honestly, it's it's the the first. Uh, this is you know I don't think I've ever admitted this on a podcast before, but I always <laughs> secretly want it to be an obituary writer because I think those are some of the most interesting stories and you you know you're you're also you have some time to do it because unless it's somebody you know wildly uh famous you know and those obituaries have been written for for years for somebody who's wildly famous you just kind of polish them up and and put them out uh, you know sitting in a vault but for somebody else who's just kind of an interesting person they write it on on the fly and i remember this guy i got to know him he and his wife really well lovely lovely people donald and barbara jonas and and i had written about them probably three or four times to different publications, the FT, the New York Times, other places. And we became friends at the end of it. And they, he had started this, this store called Lectors, uh, which was a hardware store, um, quite wealthy, at apartment on Fifth Avenue. And they took half of their art and sold it. It was at the time 40 million bucks. And they used it to fund a foundation for, for nurses. And I knew him you know, from the sale of that art, when his PR person reached out to me until he died last year. And both of them got obituaries in the times. And it was, they were really lovely to read because there are people that, you know, I knew personally and, you know, I guess their grandson continues it, but uh, yeah, obituaries are fascinating and great sources for uh fundraisers.
1: I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> so in addition to your writing in the times, you have written two books, Clutch and the Thin Green Line. So, what inspired these
2: books? The subtitle for Clutch is "Why Some People Excel Under Pressure, and Others Don't." The I love that subtitle. It is a good subtitle. It's um, so good. The impetus for that was was twofold. One, as a journalist, as the financial crisis was happening, I was watching some leaders really excel. And other leaders really flounder, and I asked myself the question: you know, why is this? If you, you assume that you're leading, you know, well, two people I talked about. I talked about Ken Lewis, who's, who was choking, leading Bank of America, and and Jamie Dimon, who was excelling, uh, leading uh, J P Morgan. And I wanted to know what was the difference because you assume that if you're you're leading. Two giant financial institutions. You're equally uh, well educated. You've had a ton of experience. You've done multiple jobs within the firm, and you've have some fluency managing you know thousands and thousands of people. And so that was the initial question. I wanted to you know why do some people choke and why do some why are some people clutch? And I, I did get to talk to Jamie for that story, so it was wonderful. But the second part of it was my hobby. Anybody who knows me knows that i have only one hobby and it's and it's golf and i love love golf i'm obsessive about golf much to my wife's chagrin she she usually tolerates it for like four or five months of the golf season and she's like are you done yet are you when are you going to be done but as a kid i played in these tournaments and i was very close to my grandfather my maternal grandfather and he would come and watch me and let's say i would play out of my home course let's say i'd shoot, uh, 77, which is a decent score for kids, you said that I go and I play in a tournament and I'd be lucky to shoot, you know, 87 or 97, I completely choked. And so I wanted to know, um, what I was doing, you know, and, and that, it always kind of haunted me. Like, why was I a, a choker? And so those two things, you know, drove me to write uh clutch, which turned out to be, um, it's a long time ago. it's 2010 turned out to be really a successful book that launched a whole sideline for me of, of giving, you know, corporate talks because suddenly every everybody who was selling anything wanted to um to to know the secret to excelling under pressure. Now, uh the Thing Green Line uh was completely different because as I say, I actually knew something about that book. I mean the Thing Green Line was based on all my years as a business reporter talking about money. I mean and I I mean I knew the subject better than most reporters in in, in the world. And, you know, there may be only a half dozen of us who, who knew it as half dozen knew it as well as I did. So this thing is gonna I'm going to knock it out of the park. I'm going to be making a gigantic donation to our alma mater after this thing comes out. And you know where this story is going. This book completely flopped. I think like 47 people read it in the United States. And I remember being kind of despondent because I thought, and that's not true. You know, I had some corporate talks and people, bought, but I thought it was going to be a, a huge hit. And, you know, what you realize is people really don't want to talk about money. Um, they, they really, uh, money scares people no matter how much money you have, money is, is laden with, you know, psychological baggage and, you know, you, someone could raise their hand. They could have said, I have a, you know, $10 million and $10 million doesn't mean anything without context. That person could have, you know, scrimped and saved and could not even believe that they had $10 million and there was more money than they could ever use in their entire life. Or that person could have inherited uh, Fifty million dollars, and somehow squandered it down to to ten million dollars. And so, um, both uh, fun, interesting books to write, but but two very different topics and two uh, wildly different receptions.
1: It sounds like the thin green line could be very interesting for fundraisers, though, because that's why everyone thinks our job is so scary because we talk about money.
2: It, so I mean, the, the book talks about the four things you can do with money, and there, there are only four things you you can do with it, no matter how much or little money you you have. You can save it spend it, give it away. There's a whole ch- series of chapters can give you, or you can think about it. And there are not any other things you can do in this world with money. But, you know, kind of like we were saying before the, the chapter in that book, that was probably the most popular that people would email me and say, I really enjoyed was the chapter on, um, how you talk to your kids about money. And if you're going to spend money on your children, how do you do it? Like, is there a correct way to, to do it? And that, that's what people always gravitated to
1: you've mentioned legacy a few times and we are definitely going to talk about that. I want you to tell us though, first about the company of dads so that everyone has context around what you're doing now and what it means to you to be a lead dad.
2: Oh boy. Uh, Thank you. Uh, So the company of dads is a media company and community platform aimed at lead dads. And people are going to say, what the hell is a lead dad? A lead dad is the go-to parent, whether he works full-time, part-time, or devotes all of his time to his family, while in many cases um, supporting his spouse in 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 her endeavors. <clears throat> I was a lead dad my entire time at the New York Times, but it really ramped up in 2013 when my wife started her own asset management firm. My wife has always worked in asset management; and she started and she she had had uh, she'd been part of a partnership, and it literally like. Phew, broke up uh uh, overnight and so she turned to me and said "Uh, i think i'm gonna have to start my firm uh now and i said yeah i I think so you know i was was a new york times columnist everyone you know knew who i was but my wife was the higher earner like our our lifestyle was you know funded uh, our kids school it was funded by my wife's career still is and um she said what are we gonna do i said well i'll be the lead dad and she said what's that and i said i don't know but it sounds better (laughs) than panicking doesn't it like if I, if i said important if I said, holy S-H-I-T, what would we, you'd be like, that's not good. Like I wrote a book called Clutch. I gotta be good under pressure. I mean, come on here. Like what I, I learned. It took me two years to write the damn book. I should know something. Um, but it wasn't really until COVID where I started thinking, you know, I was, everyone was, you know, working, you know, we're both knowledge workers. Everyone is working inside, but our our, our kids are are here. And and I had been fortunate enough to, to work a couple of days a week from home at the New York Times anyway. So I I was used to it. But I really missed the, the human contact. I'm I'm a social social person. I, I I you know like seeing some colleagues at the times. I, I like, you know, m- meeting sources for for coffee, lunch, a drink, you know, what have you, and all of that. As it did for everybody. And, and it uh overnight. And I remember saying, Okay, well, there has to be uh some group out there for lead dads. Maybe they call it something else, there has to be some group out there for lead dads. And I realized that there, there wasn't anything that for fathers, there's a oh, whole hard bunch of believe. things. Hard to believe. Yeah. I, I don't think I'm the smartest guy in the world, but I was like, boy, I, I think I've come up with something that, that didn't yeah. exist. So that, yeah. that's pretty good. No, because it was, there are a whole bunch of things for fathers who had had a need, like a social service need. Um, uh, d- dads who drink too much. Um, dads who are divorced. Dads who are depressed. Dads who are estranged you know, for, from the kids. Super important, but there wasn't anything to sort of you know bring the community together. And then on the flip side, everything that was said were for, for parents. This as parenting it's not really for dads. Everything that's labeled parenting is really for moms. I mean, that's how the whole, and so I I sort of noodled around and I did some research and did some, you know, back of the envelope math, which I won't bore you with, but there, I estimate there are about 25 million men in America who are lead dads or should be lead dads. Now there are 125 million men total, 75 million men. So 25 million Men who are lead dads about a third of all fathers, and you know the biggest group. You know some of them are divorced, some of them are widowed, some of them identify as as purely uh, at home dads. But the bulk of them is you know post pandemic um, in married couples. About forty seven percent of women earn as much or more than their husbands, and that is the sort of target market for the the company of dads because. And don't women- you think that
1: statistic, by the way, is probably growing?
2: It is because before the pandemic, it was about thirty-seven percent. So, in like two thousand eighteen, yeah. that number is is growing, and 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 it should be like yeah. Look, fifty-two percent of 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 people who graduate from business schools are are women, and the problem is that only seventeen or eighteen percent of C suite executives are are women. So, what has happened? And I think this is this moment where. You know, not only the pandemic changed the way we we worked and we allowed to work from home in a way that n- never would have happened in 2019. People in their their 20s, 30s, early 40s who have you know been very well you know e- educated, worked really hard, they don't want to you know opt out. Nor do companies want to lose people in in the workforce. And so you know, the third component of the company of dads is, is corporate training to sort of take all that experience I had giving speeches about my books and really take it to, to companies, because this is, it's, it's an important time. And I would say 95% of companies are trying to figure this out and they're trying to do the right thing. You know, 5% are trying to force people back into the office and and that's not really going to work, but it's this, this moment, this was not something that I, you know, was the company of dads necessary in 2019? Sure. Would have anyone have understood the concept? No, because it was after going through COVID when, you know, working moms and working dads were working together at home with their kids when, you know, in some cases, the working mom said, you know, what the hell? You, you you should be doing more. Why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you helping out? And on the other hand, you know, somebody's working dad said, wait a second, I'm missing so much of my kids' lives. I want to be more a part of this. And so, you know, I have a great friend, a super senior executive who is thinking of leaving his firm where he's done incredibly well because they're trying to enforce in you know, minimum four days a week in the office, uh, more likely five days. And he lives in New Canaan uh, where I live, which is an hour easy commute one way into the city. He's like, this isn't, I want to be here for, for my kids and I can work really well remotely and I can come in, you know, two days a week or three days a week and do specific things. And so part of what the company of dads is trying to do is, is get companies to realize the change that's happened and to also help them realize that in supporting and allowing men to be fathers at work, you're also really helping working moms and you're helping the company uh, as a whole, because you're, you're normalizing yeah. people being parents.
1: This is so exciting and I love hearing you talk about it. I think there's so much room for it and it's only gonna grow. We're gonna watch you skyrocket on this. How has it made you think differently about legacy? You know, This is something that you're really leaving behind.
2: Yeah, I mean, I look at it as, look, it wasn't easy for me to leave the, the New York Times. It was my dream job. But as I kept like circling it around in my head, and again i love and and the, the times has asked me to continue write a couple of pieces here and there i absolutely love the new york times but i was like do i need to write 708 columns do i need to write 808 columns and i was like, what's the highest and best use of my time and you know you know me well enough to know that i'm not if i have a fault it's like i'm, I'm not super self-serving so i even have trouble saying this, this is why i'm going to bumble through it and, and preface it but i think i'm like the right person at the right time because i know how to communicate I've been a journalist for 25 years. I've been a lead dad. dad. So it's like, you know, uh, I, I, I'm walking the walk and, and talking to the talk and, you know, people coming out of the, the, the pandemic. And it's not just a United States thing. This is why we started our second podcast as a global dads council, because, you know, working fathers are dealing with the, these issues uh, around the, the world because people are like, huh, we, when else in our lifetime would we have had this moment, horrible moment? You know, millions of people died. Awful. But for those of us who made it through, it allowed us to rethink, you know, what do we what do we value and, and what do we need in life? And and so it's it's this 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 tipping point. So hopefully I'm right. We'll check back in five years. We'll do another one in five years.
1: We will. As you think about those values, a big one that can't be ignored is money. Have you talked at all with your company of dads and your lead dads about parents talking to their kids about money and giving?
2: A money is always the elephant in the room. And I'll answer that and, and push me on this if if I don't answer the question fully, because there's so much I could say about it, having been a money, you know, writer for so long. But the first issue is around, you know, the couples themselves talking about money, because money and masculinity are so inextricably linked. and you know there is this narrative this false narrative in america that men have to be the you know you know, quote unquote you know breadwinner which i was saying a you know so many gluten free people why do we have to talk about bread <laughs> Kids are whatever you know but but it's like why 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 does it have to be that that way you know you have yeah I, like my wife I like to talk more in terms of you know, fulfilling your potential, the family fulfilling your potential. I was a lead dad for all those years, and I more than fulfilled my potential, you know, at the New York Times, running, writing a column, running special sections for the Times, writing, you know, golf stories on the side, you know, being, as I joke, the 7 string golf writer for the New York Times in my, my, my spare time, and also writing, you know, two books, one that was wildly successful, one that Honestly, did only did well in Chile, which is topic for a different conversation. but I was I feel like around Burgundy, I was big in Chile. while at the same time, you know, my wife was able to fulfill her potential running her firm. And my daughters never thought anything of it. Like in our house, this is just the way, you know, things worked. Now, the problem is the outside world doesn't see this. And so one of the things that the company does is doing is trying to to normalize this. You know, the money question around, you know, parents and kids, I argue that pretty much anything to do with parenting should not be talked about. And people are like, what do you mean? You don't talk to your kids? Like, no, I talk to my kids all the time. Anything to do that's significant that you want to communicate to your kids needs to be modeled. It needs to be modeled in a concrete way. So if I go to my Schwab donor advised fund, as I do when asked and and make a donation or my wife goes to our Schwab donor advised fund and makes a donation, our kids don't know that because literally, we we press a button on the it. computer and they and 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 then and it's all in there. They're like, "Would you like to gift again?" And like, "Oh yes, I would." They're like last year, you gave this amount. Oh, okay, that was good. I'll give a little bit more this year, or or I'm really mad at them. I'll give seven dollars less this year. W- whatever. Yeah, I know you don't want to hear that as a fundraiser. Um, yeah, but, don't uh, say that. What? Don't say that. Never give less. Never give less. I'll say that. Um, <clears throat> brought to you by Catherine. Now, um, <laughs> but it's more like how do we model that behavior? So how do we have a discussion? And it's you know, my kids, it's like, here's the letter I got in the mail, or here's the email, let's discuss. And we talk a lot about, you know, choices like, okay, if we give $10,000 to this organization, and $1,000 to this organization, why do we give different amounts? Or if we you know, uh knee jerk, just get 500 to something, you know, what is driving it? And it leads to this, you know, conversation, but I think equally important to the giving part. And, and I don't know if this is, I don't want to, I know we're talking about it is, is, is giving of time. One of the things my wife and I like, we're fortunate enough to have a, um, a condo in, um, in Ponte Vita beach, Florida. And when we go down there, one of the things my oldest daughter likes to do is, is volunteer at the animal shelter. And so I go with her. And I go and we talk, and we fill over that. And we, we talk about, you know, the selection of a dog to help, the selection of this. And, you know, we make a donation. and But she sees all of it and it gets imprinted in her mind. And that's something that she is very passionate about. You know, when there's a, you know, a, a, these are not, you know, the $10,000 gifts I'm talking about. These are just, you know gifts that are significant to her and it's same thing with my middle daughter she loves you know reading and, and books and so when there's a, a book drive or something at her school you know we go in and we pick out the books together and we we, we how what what kind of name are we put? and those are the little things but from an early age they get the sense of if you're in a position and you can give you you should try but you should you should give to things that have you know meaning to her. So just as my wife and I talk about the things that have meaning to us, when our daughters have expressed interest in in, in volunteering with something, we, we join them in that so that they That's feel great. supported and that they can see like, oh, okay, well, you know, and, and you know, we have, I um, wish I have one in my office. Well, we're not used to doing video, but there's this great thing called the, uh, the Money Savvy Pig that this woman named Susan Beecham created years ago. And it's divided up into save, spend, invest, and and donate and all three of my girls have a money savvy pig as their piggy bank and it's great because
1: is it physical or is it online it's
2: physical no it's physical i'm I'm old school you know it's physical and i and their allowance always comes in one dollar bills so that they have to make so they have the tactile sense of 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 money and what do you think happens? You know, the, the 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 save part doesn't really ever get that filled up, and the spend part that's empty because they they spend it. They they kind of grasp the idea of invest, but that donate part of the pig it gets pretty big. And and once it gets to a certain point, we'll, we'll have the conversation like, okay, you know, what should we we do with this? And you know, we've taken them a different, and they've gone to like you know, to use the animal shelter example, gone to the animal shelter, and donated you know, thirty seven dollars. And you know, and they walk in and they have the physical feeling of being there and presenting the money. And you know, these these organizations are are, are kind and, and savvy and, and you know they accept it, but but they have that, feeling of of giving you know at the level that they can give you know 37 dollars for a 10 year old is not insignificant and, right. and we hope you know again uh, to tune in in 20 years but we hope that you know these lessons now are gonna stay with them through through life and and if they have the means they can they can make you know larger gifts um, later on
1: and you're being modest I mean you have your causes you're on the board of your prep school you have been very involved with Trinity in various ways over the years. Do they know about that involvement? Have you brought them along that journey with you?
2: They they, hundred percent do. And they know how significant my prep school, Wilbraham Munson Academy and, and our alma mater, Trinity college were to me. And, and it's really, it's a, uh, when you talk about legacy, it's a deeper story. I mean, I was a, a financial aid kid, uh, through everything, you know, my, my parents got divorced and, uh, you know, you've heard on this podcast, I play a lot of things for laughs, but, and the joke there is like they're they're really bad at, at being married, and turns out they're even worse at being divorced. And um, that prep school, they gave me financial aid, and, and they, you know, got me out of a really crummy school district in, in Western Massachusetts and gave me the chance to get into Trinity. But the Trinity story, which I, I don't think I've ever told you, was even, you know, equally significant because... Uh, Yeah, I, I did pretty well Uh, in, in prep school. I did, I did really well. And I got into every school I applied to, but my parents were having a fight over filling out the financial aid form and, and they wouldn't do it. And one of them wouldn't do it. I won't say which one at this point, but one of them wouldn't do it. And it was a real disaster. And Trinity was the only one of the eight schools that understood this. And they believed me that uh, I wasn't lying. I wasn't making it up. I wasn't, you know, <laughs> my parents didn't have a you know, a, a secret bank account in the Cayman Islands or something like that. I don't think they had, um, <laughs> there was not much in the bank accounts to begin with. But, but you know, I so I get emotional when I think about it because Trinity literally changed m- my life. Like, had they not believed me, I don't know what would have happened. And and they paved the way for me to then go to the University of Chicago uh, for graduate school and and, and on to, you know, a career that took me to the New York Times and, and you know, allowed me to meet a, a, a wonderful wife.
1: There are so many amazing financial aid stories, and this is just yet another one of how significantly people's lives are changed. Thank you for sharing that.
2: Uh, I I mean, it's like I always give and I I always tick the box that says, you know, use the money, you know, wherever you want. But I I think maybe because I know enough, having written about philanthropy and and benefited from financial aid, I'm like, you know, if, if my money needs to go to buy the light bulbs so that somebody else who wants to have. XYZ named after him. That, that's awesome. I, I would love to one day have the the Paul Sullivan, uh, you know, light bulb fund <laughs> at, at Trinity College or, or something like that, because I want that money to go to financial aid because it is it is absolutely life-changing. Now you can criticize it in some ways. You can say it's it's the lottery. Like some people win the lottery and that is a very valid criticism. But, you know, for those of us who, who did win the lottery and get financial aid to to go to a college of our dreams, at least I feel there's an obligation to get back in whatever way we can
1: the way we met was actually i was working at trinity and i was working through a list of alums and you had come up and you graciously accepted a visit with me and we met over coffee at the time you knew that trinity was really important to you but maybe that hadn't converted into the act would you say that's right of of giving a bigger gift i think gift? Like,
2: like like everything i'd never been asked i would never like right. all i mean this is the the tough part about your job is like you know, if somebody, if, if you have a box and, you know, plays gotten savvier about this and the the box is, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, 10, 25, 50, 100, 500. Most people, I'm sure, pick 50. They pick whatever the number is in the middle. So I, I don't think I'd ever graduate it beyond the, the, the tick the box stage.
1: Yeah. And I just share that because there are a lot of people out there like you that have really amazing stories about their educational experiences. And it's our job as gift officers to find you and meet you and talk to you and plug you in. And so.
2: But you got to tell the best part of the story. The The best part <laughs> of the story is we're sitting there and I know exactly what's happening. Cause you, you know, you're not just taking me out for coffee because, Oh, tell me your story. Please tell me. Like, I know exactly what's about to come down. And in my mind, <clears throat> you know, I like, okay, I think she's going to ask me for, you know, X, I think X will be the number and that's, that's good. And instead you asked me for like 4X and 4X was not beyond the realm of possibility, but I never would have gone there on my own. And had you asked me for 10X, I would have just said, no, I I can't, I can't, you know, uh, I can't give at, at that level. And so 4X was just on the, the, the threshold. So you pushed me beyond X to 4X. And I remember afterwards, I asked you, I said, you know, all right, let, let me talk to my wife about this. This, this seems interesting, but, I, you know, we all make these decisions together. I said, I got to ask you, though, how did you do that? How did you do that? And you, you, you want to say what you said?
1: I said, you just ask.
2: You just ask. And I was like, God, that's, it's genius. It, it's, you know, like a, a Zen cone, like or a Nike ad or something like that. You, you, you just ask. And I'm like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember that. You just ask
1: and now today you're fundraising from your new board you're
2: well this is it yeah and today so the, the the company dads is 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 almost a year old uh we've had an incredible first year uh you know 49 podcast uh you know a, a newsletter with a 43% open rate which anything above 30% is amazing it's been awesome but we want to grow and so we have this deck together we're doing a a, a seed round to to raise money to to hire you know, more people. And uh, I, I was saying this at the beginning, you know, as I, I started the process, start with the advisory board and friends and family before you go to VCs and all this. And I, it was very uncomfortable. Like, I, you know, I, at the New York Times, I, I've interviewed, you know, billionaires, I've interviewed presidents, I've interviewed and never, you know, famous celebrities. It never got nervous and it never had any stage fright, but to essentially send an email to people who, who obviously believe in the company of Daz or they wouldn't have agreed to be on my advisory board was so difficult. And so, you know, my stomach and knots, you know, pacing my office, I thought literally thought, what would Catherine do? What would Catherine do? And it's like, she would just ask. And so I sent it. And like, once I sent the first one, I was like, okay, well, let's just keep going. Like before I leave, I just just keep going. So so, yeah, but I think I credit you for that. So thank you.
1: Well, I have to ask you a personal question, Paul. What would you like your legacy to be? What do you think your legacy is?
2: There are two questions. I mean, it, it, the one when you think about like, what do I want my legacy as a as a human being to be? I I want to you know have my family look and say he was a, he was a great husband and a, a a great father and and you know that's a hundred percent like to be you know super involved in both. But when I think about you know the the legacy and 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 that's wonderful. And if that's all it ends up being, then then that's you know wonderful. And then if I think of my but my legacy beyond my family, and that's mm-hmm. you know, to change the conversation uh around parenting and caregiving and work. And if you know the company of dads can do one thing, it's gonna normalize the conversation around, you know, lead dads, working moms, companies, and and how we sort all this out. Because I've got three daughters and I want them to be able to make whatever choices they want to make and if they want to be the 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 lead mom uh and 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 you know fantastic but i don't want them to think that you know society is going to dictate that at a certain point they're going to hit this this ceiling because all those duties of parenting are going to fall to them I, I want them to see the example that hopefully i set and, and the mom set, um that you know you can partner up with the right person and Change this dynamic and and where's that change? You know, the change is going to happen with people, but it's really going to happen if I can get through to companies and get companies, you know, thinking differently about, you know, why they don't want to, you know, penalize men for, you know, being parenting. And I say we've got to draw a difference between uh, event parenting, which everybody is allowed to. Event parenting is, you know, Sally is playing soccer today or, or Bobby is graduating from, you know, middle school. Everybody gets that day off to really, um, you know, full-on parenting and, and sort of get rid of that distinction between the you know, so-called work-life balance and, and just call it life. So if I can if I can move that conversation in the positive direction, that would be a, a, a huge success.
1: Do you think talking with donors in the way that I'm talking with you is a good way to help people think about their giving and think about, you know, into the future and their families? Would I you think it's about
2: ca- causing people to sort of, you know, reflect on, who they are because i think most people who have earned the success that they have in life have probably been head down doing whatever it is they're 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 doing right. and they're super focused and they don't pull up you know I, I didn't like as i was going along at the new york times i didn't say oh there goes column number 134 hey column number 222 it was only like somebody said to me like how many do you think you've written and that's when i you know I said, "Oh, you know 500 you know that was the first time i really started keeping track but people don't because life gets in the way and so i think getting your 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 biggest donors who've made money in all kinds of different things getting them to reflect on their story and how they got there i think that's wildly impactful because people people want to be asked about themselves and they want to have that moment to you know reflect and they're not going to otherwise what are they going to do they're, they're not going to go see their you know, they're, tell their kids about this. They're not going to go to their, you know, they go out with their buddy and have a drink. And like, let me tell you about, it. you know, this, this, <laughs> because they're, uh, they're like, I don't really want to listen to your stupid story again. I have my own stupid story. Um, But when you come in and get them to say like, what's meaningful to them and why, and why are these things, you know, what are they given to so far? And why have they thought about that? Who are they as a person? You know, and that's, I think those are the sort of deeper conversations that people crave uh, having. And once they have it, then, you know, it, it opens them up.
1: Thank you so much for giving us a little bit of a review on your New York Times career and then really piquing our interest on the company of dads. I hope that people will check out your books and hope that some of my male listeners will learn more about your company and subscribe to your newsletter. Um, I would love to close with my signature question, which is
2: what do you know for sure? I know this is such a difficult question. Like, what do I know for sure? I know that no matter what, I'm going to keep trying.
0: That's a new one. That's what I know. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Catherine. This is great.
0: There are a couple of really great takeaways in this conversation. The first one that I love is that there are only four things you can do with money, spend, save, think about and give away. And I think that is a really interesting way for us to think about our conversations and our approaches to to giving conversations. The other thing I want to point out is while this was a conversation about Paul's career and his experiences with the company of dads, we also really had a nice conversation about his own legacy and his views Around his education and his giving and I think there's a lot to learn in the way he talked about uh, what he's doing and how it matters to him and so I hope that you will think about that portion of the conversation as well um, as you go into your work and I'm happy to talk about that more with any of you Um, you can always reach out to me on LinkedIn or on Instagram through at devdebrief I will be more than happy to connect with you. Now I will be taking a break, but I will be back in May. So good luck over the next several weeks, and I look forward to talking to you again very soon. The time is going to fly, and we will be looking at Season 11. Have a great day, be in touch, and talk to you soon.
2: Hey, listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher-ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. We're thrilled to feature the development debrief on Evertrue Studios' podcast network. Check us out at Evertrue.com studios.